you will, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, our text will be verses 37 through 50 this morning. Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. The words to that hymn we just sang together are so true that love so amazing, so divine, demands our life, our all, everything. With that in mind, let's hear from God's word this morning. These are words written by Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 9, verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us what we need to see and so, Father, help us now to hear what we need to hear. We know that these words are true and that they're for our good and for your glory. We pray for your help now in receiving them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, even though it's been maybe chaotic, overwhelming, confusing, school is back. No amens. School is back virtually for most, in person for some. Obviously, there's a lot of added stress for everyone right now. Praise God for faithful teachers. Praise God for parents who are learning to assist in that process. A lot going on in the education world. But one of the things that, that schools just think normal, right? Seems like anymore we always talk about pre-Rona, post-Rona. We're not post yet. But... Uh, School in general, in a normal season, and even now during this complicated season, one of the things that schools have been doing for a good while is sending home what's called a progress report. I don't remember progress reports when I was in school, but I guess they came along at some point. Uh, but progress report. As a parent, I find these quite useful. I don't know about you. Kids are not always so appreciative. And parents, if you did not know that schools send home progress reports, now you know, okay? They're useful. The intent of a progress report is to reveal how well a student is doing midway through a semester or marking period or quarter, whatever they go by these days. It tells you what needs to be worked on, what's going well, so that effort can be applied to pursuing and ending the marking period in a good fashion with good grades. It's a good tool for evaluating a student's progress. It's helpful. You know, if we were to think about progress reports in the life of the disciples, if we were to have a progress report, 
regarding the walk of these early disciples at this juncture in their life, we might see a progress report that reads some good marks in certain areas, but in other areas there would be clearly some much needed work in their lives. In recent weeks we've been walking along with these disciples and we've really had an insider's look to what true discipleship looks like, what it consists of, what it involves. We've seen earlier how it involves a true confession, a true confession of who Jesus is. It requires a, a cost, a definite cost. When you sign up to follow Jesus, when you trust in him by faith and you forsake your old self and you pursue Christ now by faith, it requires a definite cost. It's costly to follow Jesus. If it's not cost you something to follow Jesus, I'm not sure you're following Jesus. And then last week as Jeremy preached from the transfiguration, we saw how, how a full-orbed understanding of who Jesus is and all his glory and all that he is really then causes us to, to follow him more faithfully. At least that's the intent. So the pathway of discipleship has been made clear all, all along. It's centered in the person and work of Jesus and it calls us to abandon our agendas and our lives that we may follow after his. Now, when you think about that in terms of a progress report, you may very well have a perfect GPA. You may have been top of the class in your high school or college experience. But friends, there is no perfect GPA as a disciple. Thankfully, Jesus is our GPA. He is the one in which he obeyed for us. And all our hope is rooted in his righteousness and perfection and work on the cross on our behalf. But as a disciple, there's no perfect score. The pathway that's before us often has challenges, often, often involves hurdles, struggles, failures. And one of the things that we should appreciate about Scripture, one of the things that I am so thankful about the Bible, many things, right? But one of the things I'm so thankful about Scripture is that it does not ignore the flaws and failures of those who follow Jesus. And that's certainly true of the disciples. The Bible does not put forward some Instagram version of discipleship, filters and all. No, what you see in the Bible is a true and raw version of who these followers truly are. Successes and failures alike. So in our text today, we're going to walk through the disciples' progress report a bit. And we're going to focus primarily on the areas of weakness and failure where they exist at this point in their walk. And we're going to glean some information from those failures and those missteps, we could say, so that we can be informed in our own walk with Christ. See, verses 37 through 50 is a bit of a progress report that shows much needed room for improvement. And as we walk through these today, I think it's a good opportunity for us to consider our own walk with Christ. Friend, if you were to be handed a progress report for your discipleship, how would it read today? How would it read? You see, we must be alert to the possible missteps in our walk with Jesus so that we can carefully give ourselves faithfully to following him. What we're going to see in this text this morning is four things four areas of improvement that we see in the lives of these disciples that I think calls us to consider our own lives and our own potential missteps as Christ followers. We're going to walk through these together, four areas of improvement. When we think about where the disciples were, when we think about where we often are, one of the things that this passage calls us to hear clearly is that we as God's people must confidently trust we must confidently trust in God's power. And you see in verses 37 through 43, this is what is being revealed here in the lives of the disciples. 
We must confidently trust in God's power. The day after the transfiguration, Jesus, along with the three that were with him, Peter, James, and John, they come down from the mountain, and they were once again met by a crowd. And a man in this crowd, now Mark's version, by the way, tells us that when they arrive, the, the scribes were actually arguing with the crowd. So there's this argument, scribes in the crowd, they're arguing. Jesus comes, and there he is with the three disciples with them, and all of a sudden the, the, the crowd drops the scribes like a bad dream, drops them, and runs to Jesus. They're excited, they're ecstatic that he's there. So that's kind of the, the context. And a man in that crowd cries out to Jesus, begging him to look at his son who's been overtaken by an unclean spirit. His son has a demon. It's his only son, we're told. Now, this is not so different from other occasions, is it? We're used to seeing this kind of thing. Jesus is there. There's a crowd. There's need in the crowd. They ask for Jesus' help. It's a pretty common theme you see throughout the Gospels. But one of the things in this particular scene that's different is a statement that the man makes in verse 40. In verse 40, we're, we're told, he says, he explains the situation with his child earlier, and then he says, and by the way, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. But they could not. Now that should be a bit surprising to us, since earlier in chapter 9, we saw very clearly that Jesus had commissioned the 12 to go out preaching and healing, and what had happened? They had been given power, verse 1 of 9, they had been given power and authority over what? All demons and to cure all diseases. They'd been given power and authority over all demons. And so now all of a sudden they were not able to cast out this unclean spirit, this demon. Jesus' response to them reveals the heart of the issue, doesn't it? Verse 41. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Then he says to the man to bring his son to him. Jesus there, he's drawing upon Old Testament language. You actually find very similar language in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 4 and 5. There's a song of Moses before Moses dies and Joshua takes over. He's preaching this sermon to the people of God there throughout Deuteronomy. And it's in that where Moses uses the same language of, O faithless and twisted generation, to, de to depict the state of God's people on the Exodus journey as compared to the faithfulness of God. And so Jesus uses very similar language now to speak into the lives of these early disciples. He's calling them out here for the inconsistency of their faith. Now, one of the things you need to understand is that this passage is not saying that the disciples had zero faith. That's not what it's saying. They did have faith. They were following Jesus. But their faith was inconsistent. It was faltering. It was struggling. You see, Jesus is moving full steam ahead here with his earthly ministries and preparing his disciples along the way for what would come in his death and resurrection and then after that in their earthly ministry. And yet the disciples are nowhere close to being ready. Nowhere close to being ready. And Jesus calls them out here for their faithlessness. Obviously implied here is that they were not trusting in the power and the provision of God. Implied here was that they were trusting more in themselves and their abilities than they were Jesus. Now thankfully for the man and for the boy's sake, Jesus does respond. He fully delivers the boy with the word. You see that there, verse 42 and 43. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground, so the demon causes a scene again, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. He speaks a word and the demon flees. Verse 43 tells us that all were astonished at the majesty of God. Notice Luke's comment there. All were astonished, astonished at what? The majesty of God. Attributing this exorcism, this casting out of this demon that Jesus clearly did with the word and they're attributing that to the majesty of God. Now, as you think through this passage, what, what is the immediate takeaway for us? 
I mean, you think about that. The disciples, the 12, they had seen Jesus heal. How many times? They had seen all of these miracles. They had participated themselves in delivering people from illness and demonic possession. They'd been given power and authority to do so. This is not new to them. It wasn't as if they had never seen a demon-possessed person before. But this time they couldn't cast it out. They couldn't cast out the demon because they lacked faith in the power and presence of Jesus. Friends, I think it's a warning to us. This text is a warning to us that even for seasoned disciples, our faith can sometimes falter and waver. We too can end up trusting in ourselves more than we do the power of God, and we find ourselves then helpless in a given situation. Even as a mature Christian, as we, I think one of the things that we need to be aware of as you grow in your faith, as you grow as a Christian, as your knowledge about God and his word and the truth of who Jesus is and all that we see in scripture, as that continues to grow, as your experience as a Christian grows, Thank God that it does. But as these things grow, I think one of the things, one of the temptations that we have is that we, as we get more and more confident in God's word and because of experience, we can be, we can be tempted to trust more in our knowledge and in ourselves than we do Jesus. This is not a problem just for new baby Christians. These are seasoned disciples. Friends, we will place, we, we, we will face plenty of trouble in this life, even spiritual oppression in this life. And there are times when we will feel helpless in the face of evil. But this miracle that Luke records for us here is yet another reminder to us This miracle is yet another reminder that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Friend, is that your response when you face moments of trouble, of testing, of trial, of difficulty? Are you quick to say greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world? Are you quick to, to trust in the power and provision of God in your life at that moment? The troubles that you're facing right now in your life, the the evil that you are being confronted with, whether it's in your own heart or around you in, in other circumstances, are you more prone to trust in the power and sovereignty of God than you are yourself? Or are you looking to your own resources and coming up short and feeling yourself helpless? Friends, our response of faith or the lack thereof in the power of God reveals what we truly believe about God and it reveals what we truly believe about evil. Think about the man's response, the father in this, this, this scene. Think about the man's response versus the disciples. It's actually this father who reveals faith amidst overwhelming circumstances. He cries out for help despite his son's condition. And it seems like an extreme situation. It seems like an extreme demonic possession. And Jesus honors his faith and delivers the the child. I think the contrast is sobering. The contrast that we see here is sobering. These men who had followed Jesus... These men who had seen Jesus, these men who had preached on behalf of Jesus, healed because they had authority and power to do so, had cast out demons in the past, have less faith in this moment than this desperate father seeking deliverance for his son. It's a reminder to us, brothers and sisters, it is a reminder to us all as followers of Jesus Christ You never outgrow your need for Jesus. 
You never outgrow your need for Jesus. You never outgrow your need to trust in his power and in his provision and in his sovereignty. You, you never outgrow that. You, you, it's the, the Christian life is not, let me get Jesus so that I can become a Christian and then I just kind of do my own thing the rest of the way. No, you need Jesus every moment of every day. Our triumph over evil is one and accomplished by Jesus. It fully rests in his hands, not ours. And the way that we confront evil, the way that we confront trouble in this world is by depending fully upon the power, the presence, and the provision of God, not in our own thoughts and in our own resources. So friends, I just ask you, are there areas in your life, are there troubles you're facing? Is there evil that's before you that you're trusting more in yourself than you are the power of God? I think one way to examine that is how fearful are you today? We we all have fears, right? I think Christians sometimes are so fearful. Just saying this morning, somebody that just read this quote this week is a great quote by Spurgeon. He's talking about the sovereignty of God. He said, the sovereignty of God is the pillow in which I lay my head every night. Whether an election or a pandemic or anything else, friend, is that what you're trusting in? Are you trusting in solutions and and yourself? Are you trusting in the power and provision and glory of God? You see, we we need to confidently trust in the power of God. And the disciples were struggling there, as we do too. We know that there are, that we know that we're not making straight A's in this, in, this, in this area. There are times we do trust in that, and, and we give God glory, and we trust in his power and provision, and yet there are other times where we're trusting more in what we think we can do or what government can do or whatever the case may be. We're trusting more in human resources than we are the power and provision of God. Number two, another area that we see revealed here in light of the disciples' missteps, is that this text, I think, calls us positively to prudently receive God's word. To prudently receive God's word. In verse 43 and down to verse 45. Notice the text, it says, so, so the boys healed, all were marveling at the majesty of God, but, verse 43b, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This this passage is interesting. As the crowd is astonished and amazed at what has just happened... Jesus, it seems here, pulls his disciples aside and and has a word directly for them. I think Luke, inspired by the Spirit, is making an important point here in verse 43. He says, while the crowds were marveling, look look at the text, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples. Notice the scene here. Amazement crowd marveling at this this miraculous event and Jesus has a side conversation with the disciples says listen let these words sink into your ears that word while really is instructive for us because Jesus had just cast out a demon the crowd is amazed and at the same time he has this side discussion with his disciples calling them to listen let these words sink into your ears I don't know about you, when Jesus says something like that, we probably ought to listen. Let these words sink into your ears. Now, it seems quite obvious here, because what Jesus is about to say, he's about to reveal for the second time his pending death. Third time for Peter, James, and John, because they heard him discussing it there in the transfiguration. But for the second time now, for all, he said, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. It's a little more compact of a statement, but he's already revealed to them, back in verse 21 and 22, that he must suffer, be rejected, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. He's saying it again. 
So it seems quite obvious here that Jesus is more concerned with that than he is with the miracle of delivering a boy from a demon. Not saying that that's not important. But what we see here in this contrast, if you will, the greatest thing, what we see about Jesus is that the greatest thing about Jesus is not that he can cast out a demon. He can, and he did. The greatest thing about Jesus is not that he can cast out a demon. The greatest thing about Jesus is that he will soon go to a cross and crush the head of the serpent in order to defeat evil once and for all. And he's telling the disciples, listen, you just, you just saw that happen. You've seen it happen before. But listen, let these words sink in. Not let this scene sink in. Not, not let this exorcism, this miracle sink in. Let these words of mine sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. I'm going to die. I'm going to the cross. So in essence, what, what is Jesus telling them? In essence, what he is telling them to let sink into their ears is what we know is the gospel. The gospel. We see here that Jesus is single-mindedly focused on the gospel and all that that would include. He's glad to bless a father and his demon-possessed boy. He's happy to feed thousands with little. He's glad to heal the sick. He's glad to calm storms. He's glad to do all of these things, but it's only with the gospel that he says to his disciples, let these words sink in. In essence, he's saying, don't get caught up with the exorcism you just saw. There's there's something to learn from it for sure for the disciples because of their faithlessness. But listen, if, if, if there's anything you need to be caught up with, it is this. Let these words sink in. I'm going to be killed and on the third day be raised. But they don't. Verse 45, but they did not understand this saying. They don't get it. It's now the second time he's told them this, third for Peter, James, and John, but they don't understand and and they're too afraid to ask for clarity. Now, just side note, there's some discussion as to why is it that they don't understand because the text reads, they did not understand this saying and it was concealed from them so that they they might not perceive it. There's a discussion as to what the so that means. Is that a result or a purpose? Is it concealed because God concealed it or is this merely Luke saying, describing that they didn't understand it and thus it was concealed due to their unbelief? I tend, to, I tend to think that the latter, actually, doesn't say that for sure, but it seems like the context is supporting that, it, that they're not getting it because of their own belief. In verse 41, Jesus rebukes them for lacking faith. In verse 44, he's exhorting them to let these words sink in. Either way, though, the point is for us is this. We all are at different points of our understanding of who Jesus is and our receiving of his word. But one of their issues here that's been made clear all throughout was the fact that they had much different expectations regarding the Messiah than what was true regarding the Messiah. You see, this this whole thing of suffering was not in their playbook. They, they, They weren't understanding. Like, why do you have to be turned? Like, they don't understand, verse 45. They're not getting it. Friends, it's a good reminder to us that there will be many things about Jesus, many things about the Christian life that are hard to understand. Sometimes things that Jesus teaches us and calls us to are quite perplexing. But we must remember here, we must remember that it is Jesus' word that must be taken as true, not our perspective or ultimately our opinion. We must trust in his word. His word is authoritative, not ours. It's not our expect or it's not our version of Christianity that we should trust in. It is his. And even when we don't understand, we must not allow fear to keep us from seeking understanding. We must not be afraid to cry out to Jesus to help us. Notice, by the way, that just you see exemplified here in Jesus just the patience he had with his disciples patience he had with them. They're struggling to understand what really the Old Testament had been so clear on. 
all the way through, about the suffering servant, etc. I mean, you would, have, you would have thought that had they had a good grounding in the Old Testament, that they would have understood, oh, it makes sense, you've got to, you've got to suffer and die for this reason. But they don't. They don't understand that. They're, they're, they're new, in a, in a sense, to, to walking, even though they've had experience, even though they've been seeing these things and hearing Jesus teach. They're still struggling in their understanding. And, friend, it's a good word to us, to, to those of us who may be further along in the Christian walk than others, that it would do us well to be reminded of the patience we ought to extend towards those who may be struggling with certain aspects of truth. You may understand things that, that's taken years for you to really grow into and understand regarding whatever the sovereignty of God, for example. And yet maybe there's others who are struggling with trying to reconcile all these things. And, and the last thing they need is judgment and self-righteousness from you. Do well to extend patience. You see, the disciples struggled to know what all this meant. But friends, we know it in full. We've been given the complete revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation. We've been given the whole story. We know the promises that were made and we know that the promises were kept and we see it in full. We, we're in a better position than these disciples were and yet we know that we too sometimes struggle receiving God's word. Brothers and sisters, the call to let this sink in, I think is also a call to each of us. Regardless of everything else going on in this world, regardless of the distractions, regardless of what your perspective may be about certain things in the Bible, let this sink in. Let the truth of the gospel of who Jesus is, let that sink in. Despite all that may be going on in your life or in this world, I think this is a call to us to be reminded that we must not lose sight. We must not lose sight of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. We saw it from last week where they're in the transfiguration, verse 30. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Jeremy talked about that, how that, that word means exodus which he was about to accomplish or fulfill better at Jerusalem. He, he came to accomplish a mission. You know, Jesus didn't just make things possible. He actually accomplished things. He fulfilled. He, he, he lived out in obedience to the truth of what God's word had promised, and he's fulfilling that right before their eyes. And we see it because he's revealed it in his word. We must not lose sight of who Jesus is and what he's come to achieve. We must be be diligent in receiving the truth of God's word. We must prudently receive it, even if it clashes against our own perception and our own opinions and our own thinking and our own tendency to, to, to examine and evaluate certain things in life. Even if it clashes, it is Jesus' word that we must trust. Friend, you may be here today and Maybe you've not trusted in Christ. Maybe you would not be a follower of Jesus. You've not put your hope in him. And we would just simply still point you to the same words that we're all looking at this morning together to let these words sink in. And that would be our plea to you this morning, to let the truth of who Jesus is sink in. It's no accident that you would be here today hearing something from the Bible about Jesus. And so... If it's no accident that you would be here hearing that, then we would just encourage you to pay attention very carefully to the claims of who Jesus is from his word. The most important thing that you can do is to receive the truth of who Jesus is from the very mouth of Jesus himself. We know that when we read the entirety of the gospels and the entirety of scripture, we understand that, that we are all fallen. We all have fallen and, and fall short of the glory of God because of our rebellion against God. God is good, he's holy, he's righteous, he's perfect, and yet we rebelled against that perfect creator, and, and because of that, we are all sinners. That's who we are, we're, we're sinners, and because of sin, we're separated from God, and yet God in his mercy and grace and his love sent forth his son into the world, this Jesus. And he lived a life of perfection and righteousness, and yet as he 
says now for the second time he would be handed over. He was killed. He died on a cross. And the reason that he died on a cross is he died in the place of sinners as a substitute, bearing upon himself the, the wrath and judgment for sin. And the beauty and the hope of the gospel is that if you would turn from your sin, turn from trusting in yourself and the ways of this world and put your hope in Christ, that your sin would be forgiven and that you would be accepted as a child of God. Friend, that is the hope that is available for you today. Let those words sink in. Trust in Christ. Trust in him. And the promise of the gospel is true. You will be saved. You'll be reconciled to God. Let these words sink in. And Christians, you never outgrow that. Church, you, you never outgrow that beautiful reality. Why is it when we sing songs just that, that, that bleed gospel and you hear the gospel again, that it just it warms the heart, it just stirs your affections because you realize just how bad off you were and how great God is? You never outgrow your need for this. Let's prudently receive this word, the truth about who Jesus is. Number three, we need to humbly deny selfish ambition. Since the disciples were on a roll, they decided to have an argument as to which of them were the, was the greatest. I mean, they'd already struggled in believing Jesus, struggled in, in, in their understanding of the word. They're, they're struggling in, in having faith. So why not? Let's just have an argument. Who's the greatest? Actually, my faith is stronger than your faith. Jesus just called us faithless. Mine's better. I have a little more faith than you. Yeah, I have an argument. Think about how ironic this discussion, this argument is in light of what Jesus has just told them. Jesus has just told them again that he's going to be delivered over to the hands of men. He's going to, to be killed. He's going to die, which would be the greatest act of self-denial and humility we've ever known. And here, right after Jesus tells them that's going to happen, the disciples are arguing among them which of them is the greatest. Which of them is the greatest? Friends, I think that it's a, certainly a, a warning to us all. If these men who could walk day after day after day after day with Jesus, if these men could walk with Jesus and struggle with being overly preoccupied with themselves, don't think for a minute that it won't be an issue for you. You see, they had too high of a view of themselves at this moment and too low of a view of Jesus. They had overestimated themselves and underestimated God. That was a big problem. You ever do that? You ever overestimate yourself and underestimate God? It's a problem we face regularly, I believe. So how does Jesus deal with the dispute? He does so with an illustration. Presumably from the crowd nearby, he brings a child to his side and he wisely gives them an important lesson about greatness. You see it there in the text. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he could read their, their hearts, he knew their motives, he knew their intentions. He takes a child, he puts him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. He teaches them an important lesson on humility. And he does so by pointing out what true greatness is. Greatness, he's, he's explaining here that greatness is not inherent in a person, in their status, in what they can do, but it's found, true greatness is found by one's relationship to Jesus. The child alone does not have greatness. Certainly in that day and time would have not been seen as great. The child would have been seen as weak and lowly and can't take care of him or herself. But Jesus says receiving such a child in Jesus' name is the same as receiving Jesus. And to receive Jesus is to receive God who sent him. In essence, he's calling upon the disciples here to change the way they view people, the way they view themselves. Greatness has nothing to do with status. Greatness has everything to do with one's proximity to Jesus. In God's kingdom, it's not those who are preoccupied with themselves that are great, but rather the lowly, 
that's great. Those who are willing to humble themselves like a child. See, Jesus turns the whole social pyramid of the day upside down. And while they were aware of his greatness to some degree, their categories are still confused as to what greatness is. And Jesus drives home this important lesson on humility here, saying true greatness is not going to be found in one's status or ability. True greatness is defined not by you, not by the world, but but, but it's defined by God. And so he checks their hearts. He checks their hearts here because had they continued on with this prideful competition, then the message of the gospel would have been lost upon them. Think about our own lives and our own hearts for a moment. Aren't we all prone to think of ourselves more highly than we ought? Aren't we all prone to overestimate ourselves and underestimate God? We're not even the point of all of this. And often we make ourselves the point, don't we? Jesus is the point of it all. Power and glory of God, the person of Jesus Christ, and all that God has promised and all that God has accomplished through him, and now by sending his spirit into the world, that's the point. And so often we make ourselves the center, don't we? We make ourselves the point. We want to we wanna overestimate ourselves. I love what great Moravian bishop from the 1700s, Count von Zinzendorf, Count von Zinzendorf said this, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. That's a great word to Christians. Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Great call to humility. That's what Christ is calling us to. Be be forgotten, friends. Yes, God has created you and he's given you this place in this world at this time and to accomplish purposes for his glory. But it's not about you. Don't compare yourself and how great you are or how not so great you are to other people. Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. It's a good word for us. It's been a good word for the disciples to hear at that point. Friends, we are called to humbly deny self. He's already talked about that. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. That's what Jesus said, Luke 9, 23. And here the disciples are still full of themselves. Aren't we all from time to time? Then last, as we continue to look at this progress report Jesus is positively encouraging them and encouraging us to graciously affirm gospel work. Graciously affirm gospel work. Look at verse 49 and 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. You see, the disciples' pride and fixation on themselves not only showed up in their dispute, it also shows up in how they viewed others. John, one of the ones who had just seen the transfiguration, seems to to respond to Jesus as a lesson about humility, contradicting just exactly what Jesus had just taught them. Jesus had just taught them about being humble and what true greatness is and how they should view others and themselves. And here, John's complaining about someone else, not one of the twelve, casting out demons in Jesus' name. He wants to know who this outsider is. I mean, who could possibly be doing the work of God besides us? He's not in our group. And Jesus said, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Jesus makes clear that not only is everyone valuable in the kingdom of God as he takes up a child, but we must see that ministry is available to all who will embrace Jesus. What a great point for us today. Friends, we can quickly foster, if we're not careful, we can quickly foster an elitist mindset when it comes to to ministry. If we're not careful, we can can foster this, this sense of pride in our in our own hearts and lives and even corporately as a church? Will we grow 
skeptical of other churches and skeptical of other ministries. And while there may in fact be differences among different churches and ministries, friends, if they are preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ and they're believing the scriptures as the word of God, then I think the call here for us is that we need to be for them. Sure, there may be secondary and tertiary matters we would want to walk through with them and maybe have disagreements over. But if they're preaching the truth of the gospel, if they're believing the power of God and the truth of his word, then we need to be for them. Pastors especially can be suspicious, jealous people. I know I can be quite cynical and skeptical about other churches and ministries that are doing gospel work, but they may not be doing it the same exact way I think they should. And so I kind of get a chip on my shoulder. I struggle with that. I don't know about you. I, I can get a little attitudish towards other groups, other Christians, other ministries, other churches. But listen, if they believe the Bible, if they're preaching the gospel, then I need to be for them. I need to be for them. I may want to have side conversations about other aspects of theology. For example, I love Presbyterians. I think they totally blow baptism. They just miss it. They're dead wrong on baptism, I think. But some of them preach the gospel much more clearly than Baptists do. Some of them are faithful in clarifying the the truths of God's sovereignty and grace than many Baptist churches would. This point is not about Baptists and Presbyterians. It's not about any group you want to bring up. But the point of the matter is that we need to understand that no church or, or ministry, no church or ministry has an absolute monopoly on all wisdom and gifts. Our default attitude toward other believers who preach the gospel ought to be gratitude, not negativity. And that can be hard sometimes because we're prone to pride. And when we think we're right about something, we want, we want to assert that way, and we should. This is not a call to deny theology. You should know that in this church by now. This is not a, not a call to say, okay, let's just ignore doctrine. Not at all. But it is a call to humble ourselves and realize that we're not the only game in town. That there are other good gospel workers out there, other faithful ministries. This is one of the reasons we want to pray for other churches in our, in our gatherings, and we do. Other ministries, and we do. Friends, if the gospel is going to reach all peoples and nations, if disciples are going to be made all over the world, then many laborers are needed. And we're called to value their work. We're part of a greater movement of God's work, and we're always, we always need to be reminded of that. We need to graciously affirm gospel work. Well, The disciples had some growing to do. Some progress was very much needed. Friend, I just ask you today that if Jesus were to send you a progress report on your walk, how would it read? Where would those areas of improvement be most noted? Even from the categories the the text gives us this morning, are, are you confidently trusting in the power of God faithfully? Or is more progress needed? Are you prudently receiving God's word as it's written and inspired and given to us? Or do you say, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but... Are you humbly denying yourself? Selfish ambition? Understanding who you truly are before a holy and righteous God? Do you have an A in humility? Are you graciously affirming gospel work? Ministry that's being done by other Christians and other churches and other ministries? May not do it exactly like you would, but they're preaching the truth. They believe the truth. Are you affirming them? Or are you negative? God, forgive us when we're so critical and cynical. How do you rank in these areas? Obviously, there are countless other other areas in life that we would certainly want to examine, but just these alone, I think it's enough for a day, don't you? Consider these, probably enough for a week or a month. Just in these areas alone, what does your progress read? 
What's your discipleship report look like? Friends, if we're honest, we all struggle. If we're honest, there are times where we aren't trusting in the power and provision of God. There are times when we are unsure and unclear about what God's word really says. And sadly, there are times when we elevate ourselves as more important than we really are. We overestimate ourselves and we underestimate God. And there are times when we are skeptical and jealous even of what others are doing in the name of the Lord. Friends, let these words be an exhortation and encouragement to your own soul this morning. May these words confront us, may they correct us, may they spur us on to walk faithfully as disciples so that on that great and final day when you stand before the king and your grade card is given, that you only hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we know that walking as your people is filled with challenges and struggle. Father, we know and we would be quick to confess there's not a person in this room that nails it as a disciple. Father, there's plenty of sin to be confessed in this room. There's, pr- there's plenty of missteps and struggle and faithlessness, pride, confusion about your word, jealousy. There's plenty of that to go around in this room in all of our hearts this morning. And Father, we thank you for this word that would confront those areas in our lives where we are not progressing well. Would you expose that in us, clarify in our lives where we are failing, that we might confess it and that we might repent and walk as you've called us to walk. Father, thank you for giving us a picture, a very raw picture into the lives of these men who you called and who you used to turn the world upside down. Father, would you continue to use us in that way and in their steps? And yet, Lord, we know that there are many missteps along the way. Help us see them and help us to turn by your power and by your grace that we, that we might walk faithfully and that we might walk well for your glory and for the good of our community and for the good of the nation and for the good of the nations. God, we need your help. We ask for it today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.